Good morning. If you are visiting with us this morning, let me welcome you to Tombow Bible Church on our holiday weekend. My name is Carl Carr. I'm one of the teachers here at Tombow Bible Church, and I'm going to be teaching this morning because our pastor, Skeet Alterson, is away on a mission trip to Honduras uh, this morning. Last week, we began a new sermon series entitled Origins, How We Got Here. Uh, And in this sermon series, we're going to be undertaking this in-depth study at the first 12 chapters of Genesis. So in that first week, last week, Skeet taught about creation. And if you remember, he rightly emphasized the point that what you believe about the origin of life and the origin of mankind in particular is reflected in how you live and you approach life today. So, last week was creation, and this week we're going to turn to vocation, whereby we're going to examine in Genesis 1 and 2 the special aspects of the creation of man and how this applies to Christianity today. So, today we're going to cover three aspects of God's creation of mankind. So, if you're taking notes. Aspect number one, we're going to examine how we were created with an intended self-image. And aspect number two, we're going to examine how we were given a specific position within God's creation. And then aspect number three, we're going to examine how we were created for a God-given purpose here on this earth. So that's today, intended self-image, intended specific position, and God-given purpose. And then after we cover these three aspects, hopefully we're going to examine why these aspects of our creation Uh, really matters today to you. So, created with an intended self-image. I'll begin this morning by saying that for those of you who are parents, uh, are going to be parents or have been parents, you realize that sometimes being part of, being a parent or part of that uh, for school-age children is that you have to go to open house at your children's school. Uh, And so you go and you look at their academic works and their beautiful, precious works of art, and sometimes you look at their awards uh, as well. Now, as you may know, open house for parents, if you've ever been, uh, can be a little bit uncomfortable for some parents because you realize that at the open house, uh, you're not only going to see your own child's work, but you're going to get to see other children's work as well and make some comparisons. And not only that, but that all the other parents are going to be able to see your kids' stuff as well. So there's a little pressure tied in it, and that's why uh, it can be uncomfortable. Well, why is it so uncomfortable? I believe, well, because deep down we realize that our children bear our image, and what they do reflect on us just a little bit as well. See, that's why you never, and I learned this the hard way, that's why you never want to laugh at some kid's artwork at an open house, because... That kid's parents may be standing nearby. And, and parents take their own kid's image very personally. Well, well, why? Because their kid's image reflects upon who they are as well. And that's why when some child is misbehaving, throwing a fit, whatever, if it's not your child, that's much less concerning than if it's your child doing it, right? Now, the, the awareness that your children bear your image 
becomes most acute when your precious little image bearer goes out into the world and quotes you in front of other adults. Case in point, I remember attending open house during my uh, daughter's kindergarten year at Salem Lutheran School. And as I entered her classroom, the teacher's face lit up, and she comes over to me, and she says, Oh, you're Taylor's dad. And I said, Yes. And she goes, I I understand from Taylor that we Lutherans are confused on a few issues. (laughs) And I said, Yes, she's she's just like her mom. (laughs) (laughs) But you get the point, though. Just like our children bear our image... We bear the image of God. And just like the behavior of our children concerns us, as our image bearers, the behavior of God's people, the people who bear his name, concerns God the Father as well. So likewise, our our actions should concern us because we bear the image of our Heavenly Father. So turn with me this morning as we begin to Genesis chapter 1. And let's let's read verse 26 and 27. Now, you'll remember from last week, in the previous verses of this chapter, we had the first five and a half so days of creation that we examined last week. And then on the sixth day, we began the process where God was making living creatures according to their own kind. And then we come to verse 26. So Genesis 1, verse 26, it says, Then God said... Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So you see in these two short verses what I think are some pivotal components to our own image and identity. Number one, God says in verse 26, he says, let us make man in our image. And we get this glimpse of the fact that we are made in the image of a Trinitarian God. So God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are present and participating personally in our creation. Then, You see, throughout Scripture, that man possesses a mind, a body, and a spirit, reflecting, in some ways, our own Creator. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5, contains the very first commandment. And we see this unique aspects to humans depicted when that verse says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. This threefold aspect to our being that makes us self-aware, also makes us unique, a unique reflection of God's image. And, a un, and it also makes us unique from all of the rest of creation. Second, in these passages, we see that since we are made in the image of a creator that exists in perfect relationship within the Trinity, we were designed to be relational as well. Jump down to Genesis chapter 2 and look at verse 18. I'm going to jump all over Genesis 1 and 2 today. Genesis 2, verse 18, it says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now skip down to verse 24. Genesis 2, 24. It says, 
Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So once again, we see the reflection of our Creator, since God knows that humans made in His image are by design created to be relational. So God makes Eve for Adam, and He describes their relationship as they becoming one. Lastly, on this identity issue, we found that the fact that our creation was a very personal act by God. Look for just a moment at Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. Verse 7 says, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Jump down in the same chapter to verses 21 and 22. It says, So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of the ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. So we see in our creation a very personal act by God, whereby instead of just speaking us into existence like he did with all the other creatures, he forms us with his own hands and breathes life into us. What's the point? Well, the point is we are created in God's image in a very personal fashion so as to reflect our creator. The, The fingerprints of God are all over humans as we were formed to be unique in the fashion of our creator. Our own self-image, then, should incorporate the fact that we are God's crowning act of creation. He loves us as his own creation, and we are most important to God above all creation because we were made in his own image, our image reflecting him. Now, I want to contrast just a couple of philosophies that exist for the origin of man. Philosophy number one is, and this is the most prevalent secular philosophy, It tells us that we are here on this earth by a cosmic, chemical, and physical accident. And that after millions of years, life on earth has evolved into what it is now. And so within this paradigm, our life here today on the bigger scale of time is without meaning and without any noble purpose other than to satisfy our current desires. Because it's all pointless anyway, right? And nothing at all really matters. In contrast... The Bible says that we are the crowning achievement of God's creation, created personally in our own Creator's image. As such, we reflect the God of the universe. And although the current bodies that we are in are temporary, we will live with Him forever. And get this, what we do here on this earth in our lifetime matters greatly. And so when you you contrast these two outlooks on life, it underscores the point that Skeet was making last week, that what you believe about your origin will be reflected in how you view your life today. So we have a self-image rooted in God's image that was intended by God from the beginning. Now for the second aspect of our creation that I want to discuss this morning. In the beginning, not only were we created in God's image, we were given at our creation a very specific position within God's creation. So turn again back to Genesis chapter 1. And I want to read through verses 26 through 30. And you can read along with me thinking about position. So verse 26 through 30 says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. 
and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Verse 29 says, And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. Skip down to Genesis chapter 2 and look at verses 15 through 17. Beginning in verse 15 of chapter 2, it says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat it, eat of it, you shall surely die. Okay. Uh, from this passage, we can clearly discern that from our creation, we were given a very specific position within God's creation. First of all, we are given dominion and rule and stewardship over the rest of all creation. From plants to animals and everything else, God sets us above these things and gives us authority and blessing from all created things according to his plan. As his image bearers, we are not just another animal ruled by instinct. Also, we are not just another animal that evolved from another animal. We are made in his image, and God ordained that we are unique, distinct, and above all the rest of creation. Second, from these same verses, we see that in God's interactions with man what you will see is that God makes, God gives, God blesses, God speaks, and God commands. From the beginning, we were created to live life, this coram deo. It's, it, it's a word that means before the face of God. In other words, we were created to live life under the authority of God, independent, I'm sorry, dependent upon God by the word of God and to the glory of God. And it's in this position where man was perfect and life was blessed. Outside of this plan, we do not function well. Outside of God's plan and our intended position, we become like washing machines trying to be airplanes. It just doesn't work. And we have history to just to prove the disastrous consequences on all of the rest of creation, including us, when we choose to live outside of our God-given position in creation. So in many ways, all of our sins begin with a declaration of autonomy from God. And we see it from Eve to Adam to you and me. In fact, Satan began in the garden with this lie when he told Eve, you can be like God. So the core meaning of what it means to be fallen is to live outside of God's plan for mankind. Therefore, we were created to be under God and over the rest of all creation. And that's our God-given position. Now I want you to notice something. Every philosophy of man and every heresy of the church began with this 
contrived philosophy that's outside of God's word, and it either makes us out to be God or it makes us out to be no different than the animals. And you see this over and over and over and over again in the philosophies of man. It moves in one direction, for us to be God or for us to be an animal. And and we see this from cults to secular humanism to whale wars and even Oprah. And any philosophy that attempts to move us from our position designed by God is the lie that was birthed by Satan. So we are to live all of life in the presence of God. And if this is true, then nothing in life is secular and everything is sacred for those who belong to God. Now, let's turn to the last aspect of man's creation that I want to discuss this morning. Not only were we created in God's image and given a specific position in his creation, we were also given a specific purpose in his creation. So turn with me now to Genesis once more and just look at verses uh, 28 and 29 of verse 1. So Genesis 1, 28 and 29. Verse 28 says, And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food and to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life. I've given every green plant for food. And it was so. Now skip all the way down to chapter 2 and look at verse 15 again. So chapter 2, verse 15 says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. So in these verses, we see God giving us a purpose in words like be fruitful, to subdue, have dominion, work, and keep in regards to God's creation. So although God creates the world and owns everything in it and is sovereign over it all, his plan from the beginning was to administer his creation through man, whom he appointed as his representatives or ambassadors on earth. By doing so, he entrusted us to serve him by enacting his will for creation. This is our intended noble identity and purpose from the time of creation. Now, what about now? Well, considering us as his ambassadors and also considering this anticipated fall of mankind, what has been God's purpose for creation? Well, as you know, the entirety of the story of the Bible describes God's purpose as redemption for his fallen creation via Jesus Christ. That's the good news of the gospel. And despite our sin and our declarations of autonomy from him, God reaches down in mercy to redeem us and to restore us to our proper position and to our proper purpose as his children. When God saves us, he restores us to his image. Kind of like broken mirrors, he puts us together again via the work of Christ so that we may again reflect him then once again the redeemed regain purpose in this life as his ambassadors to administer his message and plan of redemption for a fallen world. Turn with me now to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 
2 Corinthians 5. Go all the way down to verse 16, and we're going to read verses 16 through 21. So 2 Corinthians 5, verses 16 through 21. In this passage, Paul describes the identity, position, and purpose of the Christian life. Beginning in verse 16, he says, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now, do you see the key point there in verse 17 where Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a what? A new creation. We were created in Genesis to reflect God's image and administer his will and his message. But what happened? Our original creation was corrupted by sin. But by God's mercy, he reaches down and he recreates us via Christ's act of reconciliation and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit so that we are now a new creation and can once again represent Him. Do you see how we can no more save ourselves than we can create ourselves? That is why salvation is often described alongside the term of regeneration. Without Christ, what we are is a colossal malfunction of purpose and position. So in Christ, we have this incredible identity and purpose and image that's wrapped up in one simple word, and that word is the word disciple. I want to begin to wrap this up this morning uh, with a short story. In my third year of medical school, one of the required rotations was in the specialty of urology. I hated urology. Unfortunately for me, I was assigned, along with three other students, to a guy named Dr. Levine as my urology instructor. Now, Dr. Levine was kind of a real-life Dr. House, if you've ever seen that television show, whereby he was this really intelligent, brilliant guy, but he was also very hard on students and impossible to get along with. Now, all the students knew Dr. Levine and knew that he was tough on students. And rumor had it that was well known to all of the medical students that one of Dr. Supposedly, one of Dr. Levine's most proudest moments in life occurred when he shot and killed an intruder in his home. So he was an incredibly sweet guy. And so anyway, on the very first day of the rotation... Uh, Dr. Levine had the four of us come in at an appointed time and stand before his desk. So there was, there was four of us. And, and he then, one by one, asked us, what specialty of medicine did we plan to enter as a career? So the first student was a friend of mine, a guy named Cole from East Texas, and he thought for a few seconds on his feet, 
And then he said, well, I was considering urology. And I'm like looking at him because I knew that wasn't the case. Anyway, and then Dr. Levine continued down the line. And so the other two students next to me were emboldened by Cole's step. And so they decided, too, that they were also considering urology for their career. And then Dr. Levine got this sarcastic look on his face, and he said, wow, what a coincidence that you three want to be urologists, and I happen to be a urologist. And then he glared at the three of them, and I'm watching all this, and he says, I take what I do as a urologist very seriously. And so I feel it's my duty to protect my specialty from idiots like you three who may be out there saying you want to be urologists. Therefore, he says, the three of you will start out in this rotation with a D. And if you really wow me, I will consider raising your evaluation to a C. But I almost never give A's or B's, so you'd better work really hard. The air kind of came out of the room, and then he turns to me, and I'm like, oh, God. And he says, what about you, Carr? I suppose you want to be a urologist as well. And I quickly responded by saying, no, sir, I do not. But it wasn't, didn't go as well as I thought. He goes, so he glares at me and he says, well, tell me why not. And so, shaking in my shoes, I responded, well, I've always wanted to be a pediatrician and I cannot picture myself doing what you do for the rest of my life. <laughs> His mouth opened a little bit. He was a little bit shocked at my answer, I think. And then silence fell in the room and I'm like, oh man, what did I just do? And then Dr. Levine looks at me and he says, I tell you what, Carr, every morning show up at 6 a.m. with a cup of black coffee for me and pull all the charts we need for the day and take part in rounds and I'll give you a B in the rotation. And then he looks at the other three poor students in the room. He says, as for you other three urologists, he says, if you're not on rounds by 4.30 a.m., don't bother coming in at all. And I'm like, sweet. And so, well, for the next six weeks, Dr. Levine surprised me. I I learned more than I ever learned in any other rotation from this man. Uh, He was absolutely a jerk, but he was absolutely committed to his vocation as well. You, You see, he cared so deeply about his profession that he felt it was his personal mission to train new physicians and weed out the bad ones. Why was it so important to him? Well, it was important to him because as a doctor, he believed that how other doctors perform would reflect on doctors as a whole and reflect on him, especially the ones in his own specialty. Uh, In other words, he, he believed that one doctor that was careless or lazy or reckless would in some ways affect the image of all physicians. That was what inspired Dr. Levine, and he actually told us that his goal for his students was to leave his rotation with the understanding that when we took care of patients, we were representing the image of what a doctor really looked like to everyone else. So you know where I'm going with this, right? When I think about Dr. Levine and his dogged sense of purpose and identity... I often wonder why Christians with the most noble identity on earth don't have the same sense of purpose. The passage we read in 2 Corinthians 5, it clearly identifies that the ultimate purpose, the vocation in life for true believers 
is being an ambassador for Christ. We're entrusted with the message of the gospel. As ambassadors for God's message, we're instructed by God to make disciples. Listen to me now. Dr. Levine had this incredible passion for his purpose, and it was based in his identity as a physician. I believe that the kingdom of God needs more Christians with that kind of passion based upon our identity as ambassadors of Christ. I believe that there is a direct relationship in life whereby what you are most passionate about reflects what you consider as your own identity and purpose. In other words, our passions define us. This was true for Dr. Levine, and it was true for the Apostle Paul, right? It was just different passions and different sources of identity. So this morning, if I were to ask any of you here, if I were to ask your your closest friends or family members, what passions define you? Would ambassador for Christ or disciple maker, would those even be in your top five? If not, I would like to suggest that the world or Satan has convinced you of a false identity. It's convinced you of a false self-image or even a false idea of your worth to the kingdom. You perhaps have forgotten that you were made in the image of God for His purpose and His glory, and you are reconciled at a great price. And this reconciliation at a great price made you into a new creation and God's disciple. That's your identity. For our Father God, the identity of His children is deeply personal because we reflect His identity. Therefore, our image, our position, and our purpose described in Genesis means everything if you now belong to Him. So I'm going to invite our our worship team to go ahead and and come forward and uh, lead us. And and as we close, um, I'm going to ask you to reconsider this morning Just take a moment as we worship. I want you to reconsider this morning your true identity in Christ. And it's a noble one. I hope this message this week will be helpful when you face doubts about who you are and what you're worth to Jesus, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who is willing to endure the cross so that you could be remade so that you could be remade to live this life of purpose that we were designed to live since the beginning of creation. So let's bow in prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we, we come to you, Lord, confessing before you, Lord, that we get just mired down in all the stuff and the messiness of life and the constant, constant barrage of the message of this culture that says we are worthless and that our time is short and it's all about pleasure and we have no noble identity. We are barraged with it every day. And, Lord, we confess, Lord, that we've taken that message into our own identity, Lord, and forgot for what you were created us for and that we represent the King. So, Lord, I just pray, Lord, that you would remind us, Lord, Impress upon our hearts, Lord, who we are and the mission and purpose that we were placed on this planet for, Lord. For it's in your name that we pray. Amen.